the filthiest man in the world dies, and you will not believe what killed him. Elections in Israel are five days away, and I have a bonafide Knesset member on the phone with me here on The Squeeze, the guy responsible for the plastic plate tax. He's actually a really swell fella, and we're related. And the world's favorite pet, the dog. In so many Jewish homes these days, I invited a from female dog trainer to talk about all things Kelev. Great conversation with Kami coming up. This is the Weekly Squeeze. I am your incredibly talented and humble host, Hanala. Sometimes known as Hanala Music. Sometimes known as Mommy to my kids. Yes, Mommy, not Ima. Oh, yet. Anyways, it is a rainy Wednesday here in the land of Israel, which is always a good thing. There's something really special and exciting and magical about the first, like the real downpour of the winter here. So shortly after we say Mashi Varuach, it's, it's crazy, like... Literally the second the Yemen Taivam are over, the clouds roll in like on cue. It doesn't miss a beat. The next day, it starts raining. And immediately my kids start asking me every day, is it going to rain today? And I'm like, guys, it's going to rain, hopefully, until Pesach. So, you know, just every day it might rain till Pesach. And that's a good thing. So be prepared. Or not. I don't care. But that's the, the weather forecast as far as your mama knows. Now, some people live outside. And they need to know the forecast. And that's my transition into the weirdest and dirtiest story I ever heard in my lifetime. It's just, it's like, you know, when you're a kid and you think, what if I never take a shower? Like, what would happen if I never took, not not you, just me? (laughs) I know that there are kids who don't like to shower. And they'll say things like, I'm not going to die if I don't take a shower. But it turns out that that's now a very... Real possibility, especially if you've never showered ever in your life. And and that is the story of Amu Haji, an Iranian man dubbed the dirtiest man in the world. He died today at the age of 94. Okay, well, we need to unpack this. In the village of Dejga, in the southern province of Farsi, Fars. Okay, so basically, he didn't wash himself for 70 years. And he used to say, and believe clearly, that being dirty kept him alive all this time. He lived in isolation. You think? If you're never going to take a shower, nobody's going to live with you. That's what I tell my kids. Haji lived in isolation in an open brick hut and faced some emotional setbacks in his youth. You think? (laughs) All right. Uh, I don't mean to laugh. It's a a tragic story, but there's a happy ending, I think. So according to whoever's reporting this fresh dunk in the news, I have to. Um, he was, his it's pretty nasty. I mean, he's filthy, and his skin was covered in soot and pus, which is so gross. Uh, he did an interview to the Tehran Times, the established Tehran, Tehrani Times of Iran, um, and he shared something rather disturbing. He ate mostly dead animals. Um, well, that's I guess that's good, but things like porcupine meat. He drank 1.5 gallons of water a day, cut his hair by burning it over fire, and smoked countless cigarettes gifted to him by the villagers, as well as a pipe filled with dried, okay, this is a doozy, animal feces as tobacco. I'm so sorry I had to be the one to tell you this story, but it's really fascinating. And the most crazy part of this whole story is that, you know what killed him? A bath! The villagers finally persuade Haji to take a bath a few months ago, and he... He succumbed to the pressure, and he did, and then he got sick and he died. 
So kids, if you're listening and your mother tells you that if you don't take a shower, nobody's going to marry you, that's true. But if she says that showers are healthy, it's not true. And you heard it on the squeeze. That's right. <laughs> All right. What else is going on in the world, and especially in Israel, that we can talk about? Well, there's elections in five days. And if you haven't heard, we, we do this a lot here in Israel. It's just this day where we all go to the election places and hang out and talk and catch up and then vote and then go home and then do that again in a few months because, you know, that's just an Israeli thing that I, it, maybe I don't get it because I'm only here for five years, but apparently it's just something Israelis do. In any case, I was like, let me get in on the action. And it turns out I have like a legit family member that is a member of the Knesset, like legit. And he took my call today and we talked and I was a little blown away by some of his ideologies, but I held my ground and it was a really great conversation. So stick around to hear from Mr. Alontal, who's an American and an Israeli. He was born in North Carolina, where him and his sister grew up. His sister's son is married to my sister. So that's cool. Um, they're Israeli. And this guy is in the Knesset. And he's in charge of everything environmental. He's an environmental activist and academic. He founded an organization called the Israel Union for Environmental Defense, the Arava Institute for Environmental Studies. He wrote books. He wrote a very controversial book that I was really surprised existed. And it was called The Land is Full, Israel's Overpopulation Problem. And I was like, hmm. He's also responsible for the plastic tax that Israelis have been whining about since that was established, especially religious Israelis who use a lot of plastic. But I kind of got to, you know, I got to agree with him on that position. So you'll hear my thoughts. So we will get to that soon. And then lastly, I have a really comprehensive conversation with Chami Gross, an incredible dog trainer. She's from from birth, went to Beis Yaakov, and she now trains dogs professionally here in Beis Shemesh. And she's so popular, she like flies to America to train dogs. She's amazing, and she has so much knowledge. From her personal experience, she has three amazing dogs of her own. So we are going to talk to Chami. It's a long segment, but it's really, really interesting, especially if you're considering getting a dog, if you know someone who has a dog that doesn't behave and maybe they need a hint, or if you have a dog and you just want some tips and tricks. So you have a better dog. This week's episode has been brought to you by Razy Freed Inspired Living. Did you know that Razy Freed has an app that you can download one, two, three onto your phone or onto your iPad where you can watch hours, hours and hours of footage, of videos, of inspiration, of great kosher content that Razy so beautifully films, narrates, and produces. Everything she does is with flair and with style and with grace and with charm and it's interesting and fun and she's going to take you on a journey with her to talk to some amazing women and explore some meaningful ideas with deep conversations and light conversations and she'll help you figure out how to clean out that freezer or organize your playroom and do all that stuff that Razie is just so good at. So download her app. You can get it in the App Store, put it on your phone, chick-chock, and uh, lead an inspired life with Razy Freed's Inspired Living App. The link is in my show notes, so head down there, click on the purple link, and download Razy's app. You can thank me later. All right, I'm always happy when there's a nice, heartwarming story that's, like, not controversial. Just, like, a, a sweet Jewish story that we can share 
without having opinions on. My opinion is that this is terrific. There is a new stamp being unveiled in Washington just in time for Hanukkah that has a beautiful painting of a menorah that was created by American Judaic artist Jeanette Kuvin Oren, who is well known for her work in many media. She designs all kinds of Judaica for chuppahs. She does ksubas, paper cut stained glass, nearly any ritual object or decoration a shul Jewish home or family might need. So she made this really beautiful drawing of a menorah. It's just colorful and bright. And I know this, but there is an actual... Uh, art director who works for the USPS, United States Postal Service, and this art director is Jewish. Her name is Ethel Kessler of Kessler Designs. And she was just so excited about Jeanette's art. She said that she, the work has a glowing and joyful spirit, and that's what I wanted to add to our Hanukkah, U.S. Hanukkah series. So, yeah, there was a first day of issue dedication ceremony in the synagogue, Temple Emmanuel. No, it's not Chabad. And her beautiful menorah is going... And it's not just a painting, by the way. It's an original wall hanging that was this fiber art that was hand-dyed, appliqued, and quilted to form this amazing, colorful menorah. Listen, my mother's an artist. What can I tell you? They're they're crazy, but sometimes it just comes out really good. And that's the case in this lovely, feel-good story. And yeah, look out for a new Hanukkah stamp at a post office near you. I just realized people don't even send mail anymore, but whatever, I guess. Still still a good story. All right, and now my conversation with Knesset member Alon Tal. All right, Mr. Tal, welcome to the Weekly Squeeze. We are five days, 14 hours, 54 minutes, and 15 seconds away from Israel's fifth election. How are you feeling? I mean, I guess we'll see. We have about 25% of our listeners here in the land of Israel. I know everybody's talking about the election. I figured what could be more interesting than bringing in an actual member of Knesset who's super passionate. You're an expert in environmental policy. You're the author of the book, The Land is Full, Overpopulation in the Land of Israel, which we'll get into soon. And you're also my sister's uncle. So I have three questions for you. That's it. Three questions, and then I'm going to let you... Go do your thing, because I know these are busy times. Let's shoot. Ready for all three of them. Let's hear the first. All right, here we go. (laughs) In a nutshell, which I know is going to be hard for you because this is your lifelong passion and your calling. In a nutshell, what are some of the environmental challenges that Israel is facing in the near future and in the next hundred years? And this is something important to me. I'm a recent Olam. I'm here five years. My children are Israeli citizens. And my future for me, my children, and my grandchildren are here in the land of Israel. So what are some of the things that we have to be concerned about? Well, I think, Han, it's important for us all to remember that at, when you distill the Zionist vision, and it doesn't matter which of the political or ideological strains you came from, the idea was for us, the Jewish people, to reclaim our status as indigenous people in our own homeland, which means that we need to take care of this holy land of ours and make it a healthier place. And indeed, it is not Zionist propaganda, but it's real uh, empirical truth that this land was highly neglected for 2,000 years. And we did a really good job in a lot of areas. Like if you live near Beit Shemesh, you see a lot of trees there that were planted. None of them were there uh, 100 years ago. And we know that we've done a good job in terms of uh, utilizing water. But in the
So I, I don't know much about the details, but the little that I've studied or look, looked into, you know, the Museum of Tanakhi is right here in Beit Shemesh. And I don't know if you know uh, Dr. Naftali Slifkin, but he's very passionate about the ecosystem here in Israel and the animals and we're, we're facing extinction. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, we have in this little country of ours a biodiversity. In other words, uh, a number of species which is comparable almost to that of Europe. I mean, 112 mammal species. There are hyenas that roam these lands. There's still probably a few leopards out there. Um, we have thousands of plant species, more bat species than all of Europe. This is an incredible natural history which we have inherited, and it actually creates a great responsibility for us. The problem is, is that in the last several years, we are finding that we're encroaching on the habitats of fellow creatures of the land. And that means that we now have a situation where one third of the vertebrates, that is to say, all of the mammals and the lizards and what, all the sort of major animal species are defined as threatened with extinction. Now, we this weekend right. will be reading the, the parasha of Noah, okay? So there couldn't be a more appropriate time to talk about what that means. For us as Jewish people. So what are some of the animals that were here, let's say, a um, hundred years ago that are not here well, anymore? I can give a, a list, but this is actually the British mandate that, that where they were hunted to extinction. There used to be cheetahs. More cheetahs in the Galilee, actually, than the leopards they reported in the 19th century. Gone. Extinct. So when the British were here, they used to hunt? They used to hunt, and they certainly didn't regulate the hunting of the Arab population or the Druze population. And as a result, mm -hmm. they used to have crocodiles. It's the crocodile stream, the Nachal Tanim, which runs right through the center of Israel. There are no more crocodiles in Israeli nature. We used to have bears up in the Golan Heights, extinct. Now, one of the good things that's happened in the uh, last several years is that the Nature Reserve Authority started the Haifa a program in which we try to raise, uh, repatriate species that have gone extinct locally but still survive in other countries and bring them back. So, for example, the fallow deer or the riach morim, it's mentioned in the Bible, these are animals which last were spotted in uh, Palestine during the Crusades. And yet, uh, about 30 years ago, based on a group we brought in the last plane over from Iran before the revolution took over, we managed to restore those, and they are wandering the hills of Jerusalem, and in particular, the Achziv Street in the Galilee. That's just an example of how we can make things better. However, these are these are deers or gazelles. These are deers. Now, I'll say a word about gazelles. You know, Israel is called in the Bible Eretz Tzvi, the land of the gazelle, and it's really a keystone species, not just in terms of its religious symbolism, but also in terms of its ecological role. Now, we had about. 15,000 individual gazelles wandering the country 15 years ago. Now we're down to about 1,200. Now, this is what I would call a, a biodiversity crisis. And we can do better. We need to protect our ecological corridors. And even places like Beit Shemesh need to consider whether they can really grow at the extent they will and wipe out the habitat. There's a lot of gazelles in the Jerusalem hills. But if we continue the urban sprawl and build Jerusalem all the way down the hill to the uh, Beit Shemesh, there's not going to be any more gazelles. I mean, you can go to the biblical zoo and see a few, but God commanded us to do better. We're supposed to take care of this. Right. So you talk about an ecological corridor as a solution. So for people listening, what does it actually mean? For, those are actual pathways that help connect animals to pass over, let's say, highways and reach other animals in their natural habitats just to make animals more excessive to one another. Uh, uh, 
despite the fact that we're building all over the place and we're becoming like a concrete jungle more and more. You're absolutely right. What we have in Israel a wonderful system of nature reserves. It was up until recently about 25% of the lands, but now up to 30% of the lands are set aside. Now, these are largely big tracts of land in the Negev and some big reserves in the north, like in, around Meron. But there are plenty of nature reserves, but they're too small to support large populations or reasonable populations of animals. So we need the connectivity so that you know, the uh, the animals can wander and find mates and not be locked into some sort of what we would call an ecological sink due to lack of genetic diversity. And that's something we can do. And the whole world is doing it now because we're not the only country where there's development. But we must, these, these quarters are mapped out. We have to work with the farming community, work with the cities and preserve them so that our children will enjoy the same kind of natural world that we do. Right. You're very passionate about the future so that we should protect it for our children and that when we damage the land that we have, we don't give our children that opportunity and we're essentially stealing from them in all sense of the words. Isn't that true? And I don't think there's anybody who can think of a more heinous crime than stealing from children. So I really like the way you framed that. I love the way what you said in your Knesset speech. You said that the first um, member Knesset of the Green Party, Yosef Tamir, said we sacrifice the best of our sons to protect the land that we then destroy with our very own hands. Amen, Salah. I don't know who said that, but it's a very smart uh, sentence. <laughs> the anyway, first member, the like first to... member Knesset of the Green Party, Yosef yeah, Tamir. Yeah. I do want to say uh, that uh, unfortunately, it's not just conservation of nature. We have a global challenge because this planet of ours is getting hotter. Um, Israel is a climate hotspot, Chana. That means to say that if the whole world, maybe the average temperatures have gone up 1.1 or 1.2 degrees centigrade in the last 40 years, and Israel it's 2 degrees. And if you add to that, for example, in cities like Tel Aviv, we call the heat island, that's 4 degrees. In August, that's a big raise. The problem is, is that as we put more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, the lands will get hotter and hotter. The weather patterns will become more and more extreme with flooding. What used to be a 100-year flood now is a regular flood. We see the regularity, increasing regularity of the forest fires because it starts to rain later and the forest fire, the forests are drier. You know, we saw what happened. So it's a tragic thing not far from where we live in the Jerusalem Hills last year. We lost 10,000 dunams of, of to the fires. Yeah, because everything so, was so dry. Right. And so we really have to realize that we are uh, sitting at a point where, as President Obama once said thoughtfully, we're the first re generation to be able to identify changes in the climate, but the last to be able to do anything to change it. Because the climate scientists explain, for very complicated reasons, if you look at the models, that once we cross a rise of two degrees on the planet, all, a whole cascade of events will start to ensue, which could lead us into climate chaos. We could have a feedback series with the melt, the ice would melt from the big ice centers, which makes greater what we call our bigger factories to have exactly. So, so that we have eight to 10 years to change our ways. And there's a lot that can be done. And thank heaven there's an international community that is committed to it. It starts by changing the way we make electricity, coal, and I'm afraid to say even natural gas will not do. We need to have renewable energy. The good news for Israel is that we have a lot of sunshine and renewable systems are safer. They're better for security. 
Sure. We now have just about all electricity in five major electricity plants. But, you know, just like I can show you those plants on Google Earth, the uh, the evil uh, enemies we have in Hezbollah can also see them, and they would just love to loft a few missiles in that direction. But if we could have a system that was designed on people's rooftop solar panels and a few wind turbines in the sea and other innovative renewable technologies, we could perhaps be much safer in our future energy and electricity systems. That's just one advantage of it. But we're living in a country where the priority seems to be building new roads, building new houses, building new malls. Every single year, more and more people make Aliyah. Um, you know, there how many people are living in, in Israel at this moment and how many people are going to be living in Israel in 50 years? It seems very crowded. It You're seems like there's a lot of traffic. It seems my like... Goodness. You are asking the questions that every Israeli needs to ask, and I want to salute you because these are hard questions. Right now, we're about 9.67 million Israelis, but think about it. 1950, we were 1 million. 19, uh, 1962 million, 1973 million. Uh, those days, we only went up 1 million people a decade. Now it's 1.5 million. That is the nature of what we call geometric functions. So we're growing. But from a, from a religious perspective, it's very good news. Don't get me wrong. So, uh, I'm encouraging Aliyah. I'm not discouraging it on any level. Come to Israel, the more the merrier. I'm all for Aliyah. I agree with you. But I would say this. But just last week, and but Beit Knesset, for those of us who go, and I assume, hope all your, your listeners were there, we read from the book Parshat Breshit, the first mitzvah of the Bible. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Well, we've done a good job of that. We finished that commandment. We have 612 to do. And when the big debate in the Mishnah came between Hillel and Shammai about what it means to fulfill the commandment of be fruitful, multiply, they said two is enough. They disagreed. Of course, they had to disagree. So Shammai said it could be should be two sons. And Hillel said, no, it could be a son and a daughter. But the point is, is that uh, we all need to consider whether or not having very large families is something which is sustainable because at the end of the day. Okay. Okay. One second. I just have to interrupt you for one second. I just have to say my, my little piece. My grandmother's a Holocaust survivor. I'm a third generation, you know, from the Holocaust. And she came as an orphan from Poland, uh, completely broken without anything, com- very much tra- traumatized and devastated. And she said very loud and clear, and the Show Institute recorded her testimony about her experience in the Holocaust, and she said very, very clearly that she's going to name a child after every single family member that she lost, and that's what she do. She, she that, And that's what she did. She had 10 children, and from her, an enormous family. God, God bless her. That was, a, that was the, we had a sober, I think, historic responsibility, and God bless her grandmother. She did that. We didn't make up the numbers yet. We did not make up the numbers yet. We can't stop having kids. Ah, but that's where we that's where we have to look ahead, because, you know, we are doubling our population every 30 years or so. So right now. Well, I I could think of some civilians that maybe shouldn't be here. Maybe we could do a little switcheroo. Just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, heaven forbid every child is born, as they said, Jim's got their their birth. But the question is, right now, we know that by the year 2050, there will be 20 million people living in Israel. So the question we need to ask ourselves as a society, do we want 40 million people in Israel? Would that be, at what, would that be a good idea? At what point does quantity of life begin to degrade the quality of life? And this is a hard question, and it's an open debate. I don't have the answer. But we, we could do both it. at the same time. I mean, potentially. Well, I we discuss that because I think we all realize that if there were 200 million people in Israel, it wouldn't be a very good place to live. And that's what's going to happen if we keep growing without thinking about this. So... 
I would urge us all, all of us who love the land of Israel, who know we have a responsibility to live here, and I agree with you, to replace those lost uh, fellow Jews who were uh, killed in the Holocaust. I'm all with you on that 100%. My argument just is, is that, you know, we know that there was probably somewhere on the order of 17 million Jews in 1938 and only 11 and a half million in 1945. So we have done a pretty good job replacing them. Now, some people say there's 16 million Jews, 17 million. Of course, it depends how you define who is a Jew. But we're all agreed that given the population and demographic momentum, Israel is going to have almost alone 17 million Jews by the year 2050. These are complicated issues, but... The irony almost is that in the Haredi communities where they're having more children than in the Chiloni communities, that's where there's a lack of education when it comes to how we're supposed to be treating our planet and how it's directly intertwined with our values as, you know, God-fearing Jews who believe that the land of Israel was given to us as a gift and that we should preserve it and take care of it, and we're all interconnected. So where do you feel we're lacking in, in our education, even as a, a mother in, our, in my own home, and even to the women abroad? What is the message that we are not relaying to our children, that they don't recognize how um, sensitive our ecology is and how um, important it is to take these things seriously and make good choices. For example, I'm a big fan of taxing plastic plates. I am. I hate plastic. I hate when we use it. So what are some things that we could practically do to make a difference? Well, gosh, Hannah, you're saying so many wise things now. And I just want to tell you, as a member of Knesset, we had fierce debates with Haredi um, and ultra-Orthodox Knesset members about this tax on the plastic plates. And I made the point, and I quoted from Kikara uh, Shabbat and some of the uh, more, uh, you know, stronger uh, Haredi newspapers people, some of them agreed with me, that we have a responsibility to our children to not use so much plastic because it ends up in the sea and destroys the life there. It ends up in as garbage. And so many people, you know, uh, use these disposable plates. It's like an addiction. So when you put a tax on cigarettes, we do that so the people maybe who are addicted to cigarettes will think twice, and we don't want to perpetuate that because it kills people. And so maybe the uh, same taxes that we're putting on disposable plates will create perhaps more of incentive for people to break that addiction, and we should take the money and pay for it. Do we have a shortage of water? Like some people are like, well, well, that means I have to use a lot of water when I wash my dishes. That is true, but there is uh, today something called desalination. So although Israel for many years faced great water scarcity today thank heavens technology has found us a way to provide pretty much unlimited quantities of water so i think that in that particular dilemma it makes more sense and really to truth for time immemorial jews did not use plastic plates and true, true. they used they used they used re, and, and there were big families then and everybody lent a hand and washed dishes in my family i'll be perfectly honest I am the dishwasher on Friday night, okay? <laughs> and I, it takes me a while, but I'm happy to do it. And I told them in the Knesset, I want to tell your listeners, to put a disposable plastic plate on my family's Shabbat table would be Selim Behechal, a graven image in the temple. Sacrilegious. There it is. And that's my own view. And I think that's what we have to realize, that we have been given this gift by the Almighty, this incredible planet. And he gave us the responsibility, the Kohelet Rabbah has a wonderful midrash that we, for those of us who read Breshit, uh, some of us went over it last week, and he said when the Almighty came to Adam and he took him through the Garden of Eden and he showed him all of the creatures of the land, and he said, take care that you 
uh, protect my planet because if you mess it up in Kilkaltoto, nobody can fix it after you, okay? And so some of the damages we're doing is irreversible. And that's, we have to be very, very cognizant. And I would argue that Judaism and environmentalism are fundamentally uh, synonymous. What is the, the rule? Right, so it's not just a social responsibility, it's also a religious and spiritual responsibility. Uh, absolutely. We have in the Bible, Baal Tashrit, which started as a, a prohibition of taking down the, the fruit trees during, during war. The rabbis expanded to all kinds of wastefulness, including wastefulness and energy. So we need to recognize that um, we are here on the lands as guests of the Almighty. This is not my theory. This is the traditional Jewish way. And that we have a responsibility while we are here to be partners with God in creation, but to take care of it. That's what they say in the Garden of Eden. It's such a good time to talk to you when we're reading the book of Genesis, which may be the most beautiful book of environmental ethics ever right. written. And right is. before elections, and, too, when, you know. That's true, it is. But let's say a word or two about the elections, because I, in the great Israeli tradition of shameless self-promotion, I do want to say a word or two about this. <laughs> Okay, we will allow you until things get hairy. Go ahead. I will, I'll try to say something which I hope is... Look, we live in a country which, unfortunately, uh, politicians from all sides have somehow made a business of telling us that our differences are greater than our common values and commitments. And that we they are divided into right and left, religious and secular, whatever. And I would argue, from a year and a half of experience the Knesset, I think they're wrong. I think most Israelis share fundamental values together. We all would like to take care of our homeland. That's the environmental issues we've talked about today. But not that. We all want strong security, but we'd like to give our children some hope, maybe of sometime having diplomatic resolution with our neighbors. We all would like to have a free and open economic system, but we need to have a safety net to take care of those poor people who are left behind economically. So these are things we all agree about. So my own party, the Machane Mamlachti, the National Unity Party, has really tried to make an effort to offer a centrist option to say, look, for those of us who agree on these 80-85%, let's work together and let's be a lot less um, tribal in the way we divide up the Israeli political map. If we can all come together and share a common love for the land of Israel, for the people of Israel, and mostly our children's future, we can hopefully, I would say, neutralize the terrible, terrible polarization and sinat chinam, the, the, the uh, I would say, the gratuitous hatred, which has so much characterized the political debates. I look at the kind of rhetoric we hear from, from people like Ben Gvir and, and those kind of types, and it, it breaks my heart because that is not the Jewish way. The Jewish way is kol yudim aradim All Jews should be working together. And so well, everybody, is invite- very, everybody is very uh, worked up about you know, the issues that are very close to their heart. Of so that, that's just the way it to, goes. But we know that we what we share in terms of our, our our values and aspirations and for a better country, really, really, I believe, dwarf our, our different source. And that, that, I think, is the central message uh, of my party. At least that's why I joined it. You know, one can always sit around in a small group of people who think exactly like them, but that doesn't solve our country's major problem, which is lack of unity, and the and the anger we saw coming out sometimes in the, the COVID, and 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 it's just just not a good way to live a country. We need to learn to really love thy neighbor and your fellow countrymen as thyself. And I would hope that those people who share those kind of uh, visions would like to. But the main thing is, is the day after the election, we all 
It's fine to argue. I'll rejoin in the one society that we share because we only have one land of Israel and we have a responsibility to do a better job taking care of it. A hundred percent. Perfect. I couldn't have said it better myself. You should have a podcast, my friend. <laughs> no, I'll give that to you. <laughs> Well, I do want to encourage everyone listening that when you come to Israel, there are so many beautiful nature reserves in every city. I mean, I was here during COVID locked up and we couldn't get out much, but Beit Shemesh alone has beautiful mountains and beautiful hikes. And so long as people don't litter and respect the land and treat it with love, there's so much to explore here. You know, a lot is gorgeous. You have all the birds flying through every year. I, I mean, I don't know if I'm a big fan of the wild boars up in Haifa, but that's, you know, something you could get used to if you're living up north. But overall, Israel has so much to offer, the people, the land, and hopefully um, after this election, we can move forward in peace and harmony and kick our kids outdoors and be like, get out of here. I didn't make Aliyah so you should sit and play Nintendo. Go to the park, be outdoors, and don't throw anything on the floor. Anna, you bring such good energy to this country, <laughs> and your message is one which... You brought perhaps from Florida, but we need to hear it here from uh, from Matula Teilat, from Beit Shemesh to Tel Aviv. And God bless you. You should have a, a, a great uh, Tafshin Pei Gimel, our 5783 year. And Amen. your listeners should be regular and, and, and devoted to your words of wisdom. Amen. Fantastic. Good luck with everything. Stay safe. Drive carefully. I know it's raining out there, so be careful. Okay. Bye-bye. This week's episode of the Weekly Squeeze has been brought to you by Daily Giving. Now, if you don't know what Daily Giving is, uh, where have you been this last year? Daily Giving is the coolest way to give tzedakah. I mean, what could be cooler than automating a mitzvah? What if I told you that for $365, your entire year will be one giant mitzvah? I mean, think about it. Every 24 hours, ka-ching, a dollar from your $365 is going to a different charity. Every single day, mitzvah, 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 one dollar a day, 365 days a year, become a daily giving and join the movement, the movement of people who are digitalizing their charity. It's easy. It takes three seconds to sign up and, you know, chick-chack, you are enrolled for the year and you don't have to give it a second thought. Head over to the links in my show notes, www.dailygiving slash the weekly squeeze. Sign up for a dollar a day. Let them know that I sent you. All right. I don't want anyone to say that I'm xenophobic or I don't like Arabs or, or I'm a racist. I, I, that's not true. I like good people. And that's why I'm going to share the next story, because this is super cool. An Arab-Israeli design student has won a prestigious competition to design a mezuzah for the new 100 million pound Magindavid Adom building. Where is this building? I don't know. Where is this building going to be? In Ramle. Huh. Okay. So in Ramle, there's going to be a big, expensive, beautiful building built. And this guy, this Arab guy's mezuzah is going to be attached to the front door. And it's not just any mezuzah. It's a beautiful blown glass, blue and white, the shape of the land of Israel. And the, the color is like the sky. And it's, it's beautiful. There's no question about it. It's absolutely beautiful. And it was designed by Mohammed Saadi, 23 years old, who is in his final year at Batsala Academy of the Art and Design in Jerusalem. He beat 14 other contestants to have his design placed in the entrances of MDA's state-of-the-art 
Marcus National Blood and Logistics Center in Ramla. Say that five times fast. Beautiful. Um, interesting. It also says here that he worked following the advice from a rabbi. His original design, no no surprise, was the eye, the eye and hara, um, but he shifted it to a more abstract resemblance. To me, it looks more like the map of Israel. He comes from the Arabic village of Iksal in northern Israel. He moved to Jerusalem to pursue art and design because apparently the village where he was from didn't have a very diverse art program. <laughs> you don't say. Um, he said his religious background Im- implemented beautiful values in him which are portrayed through his work. Well, that's a pretty good story. I bless him. He should become a big mezuzah designer and his mezuzahs should be on every Israeli's door protecting them from Arab terrorists. That's right. By the way, one more tiny story that I found. This is so bizarre. People are such weirdos. A doctor removed 23 contact lenses from the eye of a patient who forgot to take them out for almost a month. You could watch that video on Instagram. You don't have to because I watched it for you and it's exactly what you think it is. Awful. So, yeah, take out your contact lenses. And if you're listening to this and you're like, oh my gosh, she's being so prejudiced against contact lens wearers. Like, I can't even listen to this nonsense. Yeah, this podcast is not for you. Somebody told me that I'm an ageist because I made fun of Joe Biden. I made fun of Bernie, that guy that they've been schlepping around since inauguration. (laughs) All right, that's enough nonsense for today. We're going to talk no nonsense and how to be no nonsense with your dog. When I made Aliyah, I thought for sure I would adopt a dog. Like, for some reason, I got this thing in my head. We were living in Hollywood, Florida. We had an Israeli neighbor, and she was a dog walker. And every day, she would walk by in our beautiful gated community with a lake and all that lovely American stuff that rich people have. And and the dogs were gorgeous. And I just wanted to be like an American with a dog. So, we, you know, the, I, the idea was born. And I started reading about it and thinking about it. And at the end, I did not go for it because at the time, my youngest was two, and I didn't really feel like it was the right age to be training a dog. So I figured, you know, we'll move to Israel. We'll have a backyard. We'll live in a kibbutz or a moshav or whatever, and we'll get a dog. And that was kind of in the back of my mind. So fast forward four years, we're living here in Israel, and we still don't have a dog because we had this really bad experience house-sitting for somebody who went to America and left their dog here. And then the dog got depressed and didn't want to eat and was having accidents and kept running off its leash. And it was so traumatic for the dog and so traumatic for me. And I was like, we're not getting a dog. And then, like, a year ago, my neighbor, Chami, who has two gorgeous, disciplined, amazing dogs, was like, oh, we found the puppy. Do you guys want it? And I was like, oh, my kids were like, we want a puppy. We want it. So we got the puppy. And we went and we bought the crate and we bought the food and we spent a few thousand shekel. And my husband was like, give me the biggest crate in the store. And then when we brought it home, Chami was like, well, you need the smallest crate in the store. So we didn't know what we were doing. But thankfully, Chami, my neighbor, is a from dog trainer. This girl went to Bezyakov. She now owns three amazingly well-behaved, beautiful, happy dogs with her three not-so-well-behaved but still very happy kids living in Israel, and she trains other people's dogs. And she's really, really good at it. Like, all the dogs in her neighborhood are just behaving better. Everybody is, like, walking, and they're, like, holding that leash. And if I ever see somebody slacking, I'm like, that person didn't hire Chummy. Anyways, I brought her onto the show because everybody has dogs these days, and I figured... Want to have a conversation about what it's like 
to adopt a dog. You know, we all have different reasons why we might do so, whether it's for a therapy dog or a company for a parent or your kids have been begging you. We've all thought, what what would it be like to have a dog? So we're going to talk to Hummy. And if you're wondering what my experience with dogs is, because I sound like I know a thing or two, first of all, I read a couple of books when I was thinking about it. So I got a little bit of information. And secondly, my grandmother always had dogs. My grandmother is a Holocaust survivor, was a Holocaust survivor, may her neshama have an aliyah. And she always had dogs, always had dogs. And they weren't necessarily the cutest or nicest dogs in the world, to say the least. But, you know, we grew up in Florida and I had a best friend with a dog and dogs just, you know, they don't scare me. But I know they do scare a lot of people. So let's take out a little bit of the mystery. That's enough bulbing. Let's go. How much more fun is this than hanging out with our kids? <laughs> Very much. <laughs> well, that's why, that's why I work with dogs. I don't have to deal with humans. Exactly. Yeah. We have Hummy the from... Dog trainer extraordinaire. I don't want to call you the dog whisperer because that's like kind of cliche. You need your own catchy like jingle. I hear that. I hear that. Yeah. Well, you're leave it to Hummy on Instagram. Mm-hmm. What are we leaving to Hummy? Well, leave it. Well, first of all, leave it, meaning I'll take care. I'll help you. I'll do it for you. Right. I'll teach you. And then my, I never say no to dogs because it's something that we say all the time in the house. So I say leave it. Anyone who has a dog says leave it. Like they that's don't. just the most. True or Most not true? people don't. People are like, no, stop doing that. Okay, well, that's why you're here, because you're going to help people understand what they should be saying, what they shouldn't be saying, and just what it means to be a Jewish dog owner and just a normal, good dog owner and, and have a good life for yourself and for your pet. Yes. Very, very important. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. Everyone dreams of having a puppy. Yes. Like, if you're a woman, if you're a kid, if you're a dad, a teenager, every human being at every age or stage is like, oh, a puppy would be so fun, and then they could be my best friend, and we'll hang out mm-hmm. together, and we're going to love each other, and, you They're know. The cutest you think, things in the world. Cutest things in the world. And then things, They grow up. <laughs> well, not even they grow up, or they never grow up. No, I'm saying that they're, like, very cute and innocent when they're, like, six to eight weeks old, and then they start being a dog, and... That's when, you know, people are like, well, I'll wait till they're like four, six, eight months and I'll start training. But that's like a toddler for a dog. When you bring your dog home, training starts that day, like literally that second. And if you don't get it started on a good start from the beginning, you're going to be dealing with massive behavioral issues within a few weeks. Puppies are not like bringing home a baby. Okay, so let's let's paint a picture for people listening because I feel like most people, or at least in the poll I did on Instagram actually don't have dogs. Right. Now, here in Ramat Chilo, there's a dime a dozen. In mm-hmm. Israel, there's a lot of dogs. Wow. And it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't really discriminate in, in communities. You see people who are completely Haredi yeah. and then in Tel Aviv, yeah. like the dog capital of the world. Yeah. But in America, it's still kind of like, hmm, they have a dog like you grew up from. Mm-hmm. Tell me about what the stigma of having a dog was like when you were a kid. So for me... You know, it's like dogs were muksa, and like from people didn't have dogs, and I don't remember, most people I knew did not have dogs. Like it was weird if someone had a dog. It just was not something done, and I think a lot of that comes from Holocaust trauma, along with like the halachos of having a dog are very, very tough to follow. Well, I just read Rabbi Lau's, or I'm in the middle of reading his memoirs, and he says that when he thinks of the Holocaust, he's a survivor, the three things that he remembers most distinctly are boots, trains, and dogs. 
Yeah. And I actually was reading that, and I never knew this, the Nazis used to starve their dogs so that they yeah. were ravenous yeah. and irritable. Yeah, and they also, like, they trained them to go after the prisoner's uniform. That's what they were trained to attack. Right. So whereas, like, a scent detection dog would follow the scent of something and then attack whoever had that or whatever it is, that's what they're no, supposed to do. Right. Well, so Nazi dogs are not bad dogs. They're just... Trained, dogs that yeah. are trained to do bad things. Yeah. Because that's what the beauty of a dog is. You can train it to do anything. To do anything because they're very loyal. Yes, very loyal. They, right. A dog is the only animal that will die for you. Right. Actually die for you. Like my Shelby, she doesn't like being in enclosed spaces, okay? My kids went caving and she followed them into the cave even though she was literally foaming at the mouth and shaking. She didn't she for her, it was more important to be with my children than for her own safety. Wow. Yeah, so that's, a dog will totally. There's like, so many examples of that. Yeah, I mean, totally. even when the Jews left Mitzrayim, yeah. the dogs didn't bark. And even though Hashem made that happen, what I learned from it is that dogs have boundaries when you set them. Yes. And if the dog understands not to bark right now, they won't bark, which yes. is so funny because I, I put a question box. I was like, what are your issues with dog? With dogs in general, and right away, they bark too much, can't stop barking, mm, barking. It's like uh-huh, such an issue, uh-huh. but it's fixable. Very fixable. That's the beauty yeah. of having a dog. Yeah. Tell me about your dogs before we get into all the um, the details of, there's so much to talk about so on much. this subject. Yeah. Um, just tell me about your dogs. Tell me when you went from being a, you're not a, are you a Yakov girl? Yes. A Yakov girl to a full-time dog trainer who has three dogs. So I didn't always do this, right? I did wigs full-time for 13 years. And then a little bit before COVID, this, we didn't have COVID puppies. We got it before we got a dog. We actually got the dog and we rehomed it right after because I didn't have a trainer and I didn't know what I was doing. This and was, I was in America. Person. Yeah. And then, and then we got dogs that we very much loved. And then we got Shelby. And when we decided to make Aliyah, we only decided to bring Shelby because the other ones were a little bit older. And we found like amazing, perfect, loving homes for them. So they were well taken care of when we had them and we rehomed them to perfect people. And it was so hard to bring dogs to Israel. We brought Shelby she flew in El Cargo um, by herself. I remember. Um, I remember yeah. this. I remember saying she, she was under the airplane. Under the oh, airplane. poor dog. Oh, she's so cute. So she's an Australian Shepherd Border Collie mix from West she's Virginia. She's gorgeous with blue eyes. She's the, those dogs she's that you amazing. dream about. Yeah, she's amazing. She's actually a working line, which is something we'll talk about later. And then we moved here. And then when she was like nine months old, we said she needed a friend because the best toy for a dog is another dog. And we got at... Um, Neve Michael, where Speedy Beatty's from. Yeah. From. We got this little mixed puppy. Like, you know. I just, remember when you brought it home, I'm like, is that, a, is that a stray? Like, what on earth? So tiny. A beautiful dog, but so not cute. like Shelby. Not like Shelby. Different and, world. And this told me that you were really dog people. And you, you, A, wanted a dog for your own dog. Yeah. And B. Re- he, it was a rescue. I mean, like, he, someone would have adopted him, but he was like this, his mom just like, Moshav dogs are not kept in houses, so and a lot of people on Moshavim don't fix their dogs, so they're like constantly having puppies, and a lot of them end up dying outside. Right. So we brought him home. His name is Logan. We love him so much. I knew then that you were really dog people. This wasn't like, oh, this is our fancy, gorgeous dog. This yeah. is like we're dog people, and now you have three dogs. Yeah, and then now we have also a German Spitz, which is also called an American Esky. Um, and he's almost four months old. He's and tiny. He's so. Is he gonna be cute. big? 
We don't know. They don't get that big, but his paws are still really small, which leads me to believe that he's not going to get that big. But he's the sweetest, yummiest, like ridiculously good. So dog. let's talk about your kids just for a minute. How many okay, Jewish kids are <laughs> being raised in this house along with three Jewish dogs here in Israel in an apartment, I should say, yes. without really a proper yard, yeah. but well-trained, and to the extent that you are still passionate about uh, training dogs that this is something you're doing you're traveling for it yeah. like you became a professional dog trainer yes. it's amazing yes um three kids three kids three kids that are all little dog trainers in their own right and they love and respect dogs love and respect dogs you should hear my youngest alana the way she talks to my dogs she sounds exactly like me she can correct them with a leash like better so than the adult is it an instinct or is it something that they learned from you because some people will say i'm not a dog person and that's where we can kind of veer into the uh -huh. conversation about how we can decide if a dog is the right thing for our homes or not. Right. And very often they're not. Right. So for a person listening that has a Jewish home and they keep Shabbos and kosher and they've never had really a pet before or a dog before mm -hmm. and they have a couple kids, what is the first consideration they have to take when they think about should we add a dog to the mix? You have to really think about how much time you have in your day and how much time you're willing to give to, the, to an animal. It's not like a cat or a rabbit. The dogs need a lot, especially at the beginning. Training a puppy, if you do it right from day one, by like six to nine months, they should be pretty much fully trained and predictable and everything like that. But you need to give it a lot. And it's not like, oh, I'll hire a dog walker. You can't. You yourself need to spend like in the morning, a good half hour, 45 minutes minimum with your dog, playing with your dog, training your dog, interacting, not just taking it for a walk if you want a well-trained dog. So it's a real investment of time. Real invest and money. It's expensive. It's expensive. Forget if you're buying an expensive dog or getting a rescue. It's expensive. Vet bills are expensive. Training is expensive. Food is expensive. Everything that you're going to buy right. for your so dog. Right. So when we thought about getting a dog, and I'll be perfectly honest, we did because... When I moved to Israel, I thought, okay, now is my opportunity. Mm -hmm. It's just less of a stigma here, and I just always wanted a dog. I grew up without any fear of dogs because my best friend had a dog, and she, he used to sleep in the waterbed between us, and yeah. I trusted dogs, but her dog was very well trained. Mm -hmm. I remember their mother being very, very firm with him, mm -hmm. um, so he was a good dog. Right. But when we moved here, after I got settled, and it actually happened, and a puppy ended up in my house mm -hmm. that, that we found, a stray, mm -hmm. First of all, it costs a lot, like a couple thousand shekel. We got everything, and you can't you scrimp. Like, you got to do this right the first time. Uh -huh. So we went, my husband bought the biggest crate in the store, and you're like, oh, my God, the crate is so big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then the dog came here, and I had to sleep train it in the crate, yeah. and I immediately realized how much time this is going to take and how little I actually wanted to give right. the dog that time. Right. So I... I rehomed it right away. And you were honest about it. You were yeah. honest about it. So people are like, well, I already did it. I already spent money. I don't know. But so before going into it, like most people who call me and say we're thinking about getting a dog, I pretty much convince most people not to. And I'm not saying like, oh, like people shouldn't have dogs. But when I ask you about what is your work schedule like, what is your house like? Is your house chaotic? Do you have control over your own kids? Are you able to set boundaries and limitations and consequences with your own kids? If you can't, you can't. People who are like super codependent, people-pleasing type of people who have a very hard time setting boundaries in general. This is a challenge. It's really hard for them. It's really hard for them because people are like, well, he's going to be sad or she's going to be sad and she wants to sleep in my bed and she wants my They're food. They're too empathetic. Right. And we put human emotion on dogs. They're emotional for 
animals, but they do not have human emotion. Right. They don't hold grudges. Oh, look how upset she is at me. No, she's not. You're looking at her with those eyes, so she's feeling like you're feeling something, so she's looking like she's that. She's responding, but if you look at her with happy eyes, she'll yeah. need that signal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like just this morning I was walking, I went with a friend and we we're going to the mountains and there was the garbage truck out here. It has the big claw that comes out and gets the garbage from the street. It's kind yeah. of scary looking, yeah. right? Yeah. So I was making my dog sit and watch it. I'm like, this is not optional. You're sitting and you're you watching You were training us. while you were walking. An Always. opportunity. An I opportunity. Every minute I'm with my I hand feed my dogs. I make them work for every piece of food. But her dog, she's walking and I see her. Like she gets kind of nervous and her dog starts reacting. This is a woman in the neighborhood. Yeah, a friend of mine. So we go to the mountains together. So I said, give me your dog for a second. I'm going to hold my dogs. I'm going to go. So I walk back past there with my arm relaxed, not even acknowledging the truck and just being like, good boy. And he was fine. Because he trusted that if you're... If you're calm, there's nothing to be worried about. Right. Reading your signals. Right. And if I said to her, I'm like, if you are feeling anxious and nervous, he's like, I must protect my mom from this big monster. So if I'm like, nothing, like you see a cat, a dog, like you're not allowed to react. Why would you even react? I'm not even going to be like, maybe you should react. If you think it in your brain, they're going to react. But their sense of danger is different than ours. Yes. However, they do have their own sense of danger, and sometimes it even over overrides a human's sense of danger. And that's one of the yes. a beautiful thing about a dog. Yes, yes, yes. I actually have a cool story about that. But the thing is, I always tell people that if your dog is completely out of control, like, no, my dog guards me, guards my house, very, very protective. If there was actual danger, you can't trust them because they don't have the confidence to actually protect you. They'd probably hide under the bed. If they're barking and jumping at every person that walks into your door, barking at every person that walks by your window – they're not going to protect you in actual danger. The dogs that are really, really well trained and quiet through anything. They are can the tell ones the who, difference between a threat can, and a threat. Right, threat. because they can actually think. When we first moved here, I don't know if I told you this, my kids were home alone and someone knocked on my door and Alana answered it. And it was only Shelby at that time, okay? She was young. And she's not going to come to the door, you know? And so Alana opens it and it was a guy officially collecting money. And my neighbor tells me that all of a sudden they hear horrible barking and they see Shelby chasing him up the stairs into the parking lot, biting his pants, biting him, grabbing him, but like being very aggressive to her. Very aggressive, barring her teeth. She's never been anyone in her life. Out to the street, comes back home, lies down quiet, like no reaction. So we came home, we heard about it, we're freaking out, like what happened? She's like, Alana's like, she was so, he was so nice, he was offering me candy. And Which is a massive red flag right red there. Red flag. Now, Shelby doesn't speak English or Hebrew, doesn't know what do you want candy means, but she can. dogs can smell danger. They can smell things that we can't smell, like you're saying. Like, I always tell people, if your dog is perfectly trained and never reacts to people and someone walks into your house and they literally lose their minds, trust them. Right. At the park... Shelby never barks to anyone at the park. She's busy with the frisbee, the ball. If I hold that frisbee, no one else matters. And all the kids are playing in the park, and she sees this guy walking on the fence the outside of the park back and forth. And she goes over that fence, and she's barring her teeth, and she's barking the most aggressive bark, and she's running back and forth in front of him, like in her herding style, just so aggressive until he left. And then she went back to playing. And people are like, oh, my God, your dog's out of control. I'm like, no, you don't understand. She right. probably just saved your kids' lives because she know she smelled him from across the field. And dogs use different senses than humans. They also have a different uh, frame of vision. Yeah. They also have a stronger sense of smell yeah. that we don't have. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And also they, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Do they have the experience of knowing, let's say, that this Mishalach and your daughter have never met before because he's never smelled him, he's never that's, seen him? That's, that, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't be a thing. So what is it. exactly the sense people, of threat? People who are bad or dangerous they give off a different scent people mm-hmm. who are criminals um or for example if someone has like drugs on them they'll smell that also but there is 
people who are usually doing something wrong are nervous. Right. And, there's, and yeah. it's a smell. You're sweating more. Right. 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 The reason why the dogs here that are reactive, whenever I work with them, I say, what does your dog react to? Oh, here in Israel, the Arabs and the Haredim. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Why? Because they smell differently. First of all, this, I don't want to offend anyone, but they don't shower as much as other people do. So they do smell different. Right. They're wearing barefoot sandals. That yeah, and, and, and the Hasidim also, they, they just smell different, right? They wear, like, black coats in the summer and hats, so they're mm-hmm. going to smell different. They're also both really, really scared of dogs. So when a dog walks close to them and the person's eyes are darting back and forth in a nervous way and they're so anxious, the dog is like, okay, that doesn't look okay to me, right? Now, my dogs obviously don't react to that, and I even have Hasidish kids yelling at them and taunting them, and I, my, I do not let my dogs react at all. I want to talk about that, by the way. We'll, yeah. we'll circle around. Yeah, we'll circle around to that. Um, but that's why they react. A person who gets a dog needs to know these things because a lot of times they don't understand what the dog is doing or thinking, and they don't take advantage of the skills that the dog has to offer their family. Mm-hmm. So if you have a dog and it's more of a burden than than an advantage, mm-hmm. then you're doing something wrong. Right. right. A dog should never add stress to your life, ever. Ever. It's pure joy and happiness. Pure. Okay, people are like, no, my dog is overall good. Okay, yeah, he pulls on the leash, but that's not every dog pulls on the leash. No. A dog who pulls on the leash is saying, I'm in charge of you. Do you want your dog to run your life? No, right? Or my dog is fine. He resource guards a little bit. I can't brush his teeth because he'll try to bite me, but otherwise he's so good with kids. Okay, if your dog is going to growl and try to bite you when you do that, when you brush his teeth or brush or try to like take thorns out of his fur or whatever it is or take his bone away, one day a kid is going to touch him the wrong way and he will bite a kid. If your dog is now jumping on people and nipping at people, the neck, it only gets progressively worse. Right. And then the dog bites, and you're like, that's it. I can't have the dog anymore. He's dangerous. No, he's not. He felt provoked because he never felt secure around people. So you shouldn't allow wiggle room for misbehaviors in a dog if there are so many great ways that we could train them. And it's not that hard, it's not hard. to train them. Not it's at all. completely feasible and possible. And you know what? Much easier than training your kids. Oh, my God. I went to... <laughs> we had a meeting with the Yoetz up there and the principal, and they asked me what I did, and I told them, they're like, oh, my God, that's so cool. We never heard that before, that someone's a dog trainer. And they're like, can you come train the kids here? And I said, I can't train my own kids. Like, I said, but if you let they me They were use- making a joke, like, right, train the kids, right. right? And I said, if I can use prong collars and crates and e-collars, I'm happy to try. They're like, it's so terrible. We're so limited in our, in our resources these days in <laughs> working with kids. Um, it's but so it's, true, because you can't, could barely set boundaries. And yeah. dogs can teach us a little bit about ourselves when it comes to consistency. They're also a mirror to ourselves. What do you mean? Meaning, like, I always tell people, like, if your dog is, is having a hard day or behaving badly, it's not the dog, it's you. Mm. It's always you. It's never the they dog. They say that about my husband. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. never, it's, never, it's never the dog's problem. Meaning if, if your dog is super reactive, it's something that you did. Meaning overall, the training. But I can tell on the days that I'm like overwhelmed or there's like no schedule. I'll say like Cholamoid when we like took them out later than normal or I didn't give them much time as they needed or I had a ton of guests over. And when I, you know, put them in place, they were like, they didn't come out of place, but they were whining meaning like they felt unsettled mm-hmm. because I was more high strung that day. Right. So I need to look at that and say, instead of yelling at them, take a deep breath and be like, okay, what are they needing from me right now? Not that you whine in place and I take you out. That's not the point. But the point is that they don't ever whine in place and they usually sleep, but now they're feeling anxious. I need to do something. You, some examination. What, what's going on? And also not to feed into it next time so that right. you don't end up with dogs that are constantly Const- yes. anxious. Yeah. Okay. So for your average family, 
getting themselves a dog is either three things. Either it's at a pet store, which we'll talk about how mm-hmm. awful that is. Don't mm-hmm. do it. Uh, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Or it's a farm somewhere Private where breeder. there's a breeder mm-hmm. and they go and they choose from the litter mm-hmm. and it's a whole family experience and they spent $3,000 for a golden retriever that they really, really wanted. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you're going to keep your dog, by the way. Right. Or they go to a kennel mm-hmm. like I used to do probably twice a month when I was living in Florida. Oh, I was just fun. obsessed and walk through and see all the dogs. And when you go there, if you have a fear of dogs, it could be very daunting mm-hmm. because these dogs are all extremely stressed. Mm-hmm. They're all locked abused, up, yeah. locked up, malnourished, left on the street, abandoned, mm-hmm. sad, angry. Mm-hmm. I mean, wow. I want to save every single one. And and these dogs could be saved and rehabilitated and be amazing, amazing, amazing mm-hmm. dogs. So which of these three options should a... Should your average family do? And should people get a puppy or get a dog that's rehomed? What's the advantage of an older dog versus a newborn dog? That's such a good question. So there's so many parts to this. First of all, before anything else, you have to first research a breed that you're getting. So if you walk into a kennel and you're like, oh, my God, that dog's so cute. It's like probably like a lab pit mix that was left on the street and abused. Okay, those are both work dogs. They're work dogs, so understand what a you're Labrador getting. A Labrador and a pit bull. And a pit bull. Well, all work dogs, right? Now, in general, people are like, oh, I want something that's a poodle mix. I promise you guys, you don't. Stop buying poodles. They're the hardest dogs to train. But they're the ones that don't shed, and they're so cute, and they're all over Instagram, and you could dress them up. I have three shedding dogs, and I'll take that any day over a poodle. I mean, I make so much money because of poodles, because everyone has poodles, and they're out of control, and because they look like teddy bears. Is that a breeding there. issue? Both. Um... The thing with poodles is that because everyone wants anything with the poodle, they overbreed them. And a lot of them end this up with This is the like, golden doodles and the Aussie doodles. And even and though Labrador Shelby's an Aussie doodle. Ca- but No, she's not. Oh, she's, she's just an she- Australian Shepherd Border Collie mix. Oh. Yeah. I would never bring a poodle into my house ever, ever, ever bring a poodle into my house. There's so many amazing dog breeds. Stop mixing them with poodles. I just need okay. to say that because it and makes me so And also there's no more Dalmatians. What happened to Dalmatians? Well, that's what happened when the 101 Dalmatians came out is that everyone wanted Dalmatians. So they started overbreeding them and they ended up with aggression. And blindness and, and all kinds of different things. happens. So, yeah. So what kind of dog should a family get? And how can they, you know, you, can you give some some um, yeah. great breeds for families? Yeah. So let me first go back to the, the, the kennel versus the, you know, buying from a breeder thing. Okay. Okay. So first of all, buying from a puppy store means that it came from a puppy mill. Puppy mills are awful. It's like the most abusive thing. They take a dog, they make her have babies every single cycle, which they have a cycle twice a year, and they basically have it make babies till it basically dies from exhaustion. Um, the puppies are treated terribly. A lot of them come with kennel cough and all these all things. Because it's all about money. They want to get money, them cheap and, it's, and sell them. If you go yeah. down the rabbit hole on Google, you'll cry your eyes out. Do not support puppy mills. Amish puppies, by the way, is a puppy mill. People are like, no, it came from the Amish. No. Can you buy a puppy on Craigslist? <sighs> yes, if it's from if you from an actual You have to know breeder. what you're doing. You have to know what you're doing. Because okay, all next. of them are scams also. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then you have private breeders. You have small people like like Shelby was from a farm that their Australian Shepherd Border Collie happened like they she had puppies with actually her dad is the um Came second, there's second yichos, in the there's world. Yichos, yeah, no? he's, she's, okay. he's very, very cool. Very, very, very cool. <laughs> anyway, um, so you have like those kind of people. It's like a family had puppies. You buy it from them. Or you have like these like very exclusive private breeders. And like you said, like you can pay a lot of money. You can pay more than $3,000 for a golden mm-hmm. retriever. Um, but it's the healthiest way to go if you want a puppy. If you want a puppy. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll get back to the puppy thing in a second. Then you have like, you know, kennels and shelters and all these things. 
amazing because you can save a dog. Don't go get a dog so you can actually save a dog without understanding what, what it needs. Meaning you're bringing home a dog that's been through a lot of stuff. So people would say, oh, I have to be really, really lenient with it and be really, really sweet to it and let it sleep in my bed and let it trust me and all that. Wrong. (laughs) Wrong. You have to give it more structure, more boundaries, more strict. That means create training on day one in a very, very, very calm, sweet way. Like never leave it. Like sleep next to the dog, create at night, make it feel secure. Like right away, like nip all the fears. So it's not for beginners who don't know what they're doing. No. And you should definitely get a trainer on board, read a bunch of books and know what you're getting into. And take clues from the people at the kennel who, by the way, will tell you straight up, this dog is not for you. Like, don't push if they tell you this dog is not for your family. Right, right, right. But also, a lot of kennels don't really understand the behavior. Like, I work with dogs who have a serious, quote-unquote, aggression. It's fear aggression. The minute I, like, basically let them know, like, I'm in charge, you can chill, they're perfect. So they're going to, like, they bark and they lunge and they growl because they're trying to create distance between them and a person they don't trust people. Mm -hmm. So it's like... Basically, yes. If you're a beginner, do not get a dog from a shelter. I know you're trying to save every dog in the world. Not for you. Okay, that's number one. And you have to, like, your previous dogs that you had, you had to be have well-trained or don't even try it with a sheltered dog. The next thing with the puppy thing is that puppies versus getting a dog that's being rehomed, puppies require a lot, a lot from the get-go, but you're not fixing someone else's damage and trauma. Which is also you a have a deal. fresh start if the dog is healthy and yeah yeah, yeah. and like you create you can create the dog that you want like my dog that's not even four months old like he spends majority of his life in the crate yesterday we had furniture delivered he was in the crate in the room with drills and noise with strange men chilled my dogs were sleeping through it like th- like that's how your puppy should be right from like day one. He walks in a heel. He has recall in the park and all that. So if you do from the beginning, by a few months old, you should like your life should be like pretty simple and easy. Right, and but there is that time commitment in the beginning because a puppy. Just the beginning, right? You have to keep safe. And it's the potty training and the crate training and it's it's all, and just the basic obedience training it takes a few months. But it's only a few months. So if you're willing to put in that few months at the beginning and getting a good trainer, and your whole family's on board and everyone's doing the same thing. I think it's the healthiest way to go. Mm-hmm. Then you know everything about this dog. Okay, so you adopt a puppy, you bring it into your house, and you tell yourself, okay, so we're going to train this dog, and we're going to hire a trainer, and we're going to do everything right, and you're about four or five months in, and we, you start that pattern with who's going to walk the dog, who's mm-hmm. going to walk the dog, mm-hmm. who's going to walk the dog, why did you leave the dog food out, mm-hmm. you guys didn't change the water. Mm-hmm. How important is it for people to understand the long-term commitment that you have after you have a puppy in making sure that it's not neglected and that you don't, this is not like a kid that you train right. to go to the bathroom and then you let right. it go to the bathroom. Correct. You Correct. always have to train your dog. Yeah, your t- dog training never stops. I don't like this, like the, you're saying who's walking the dog kind of thing. It should never be like that. It should be like, I want to take you out. I say you're dating your dog every single day. Whoever is the one that like mainly walks the dog, everyone has to be on the same page. So if your son walks your dog without a prong collar, not in the heel, lets him do it to sniff around while he's on his phone while he's walking, that dog just came home with zero mental stimulation. Doesn't help. But if you take your dog to the park in the morning and you throw your Frisbee for a half hour, you do basic obedience training or whatever it is, you're doing trail running with recall, that's what the dog needs. Do you right? love it? Love it. Like you feel at peace when you're out with the dogs? Oh my God, it's the best. First of all, I feel safe, but I love it. I love right. it. I love being in the mountains with them. The other thing is that, like like I said, the training never stops. When I go to the States and come back, very often Shelby will test me when I come back with behavior. She has to be on your toes. All the time. And you're committed to that dog till the day it dies. 
It's like not like, oh, now it could raise itself like kids, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. You, can leave them. you have to work with them every single day and give them attention and stimulate their minds every single day. That never I want to talk about old age because that's a big problem. Yeah. But a few other things first. So now you have a dog that you are enjoying. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's things that you have to learn constantly, but you're on top of it. Obviously, once in a while something comes up that you weren't prepared for, mm-hmm. like uh, – uh, another kid comes over and that kid's petrified. You know mm-hmm. what to do if a kid is petrified of your dog and screeching and it aggravates your dog? So how do people find those answers? And could you give people some tips for, let's say, a friend who's scared or a dog that maybe did bite or a dog that's constantly tearing or scraping or just habits that dogs get into that we don't anticipate and are very difficult? Okay. So dogs generally, until they're like one or two, are going to try to eat things and be destructive. Let's go to the destructive thing first. Um, that's why the crate is so important. People don't want to do a crate. They think it's barbaric. It's not. Dogs are dead animals, just like wolves. They feel safe in a crate. They are safe. Your stuff is safe. And everyone around you is safe. So the puppies should spend like literally 18 to 20 hours a day in a crate out of 24. And as they get older, less and less, but a good chunk of their day and their night in the crate locked up. Not like it's not a bad thing. It's good for them. Um, and then you know that your stuff is not getting ruined. Also, like uh, my dogs are on leash until they're perfectly trained. I say off leash is a privilege. They're on leash in the house. That means I can step in that leash and grab them and correct them if doing something I don't like. So let's so. say a kid comes over and, and they're scared. You could reach for the leash and be like, okay, Shelby, we're going we're gonna to interact say place. here. Or take- I say place. I don't make, I don't, when, when people come to my house, I don't want the people to have to like deal with my dogs unless they want to. So the first thing I do is I say place, then they're in place, and then I can let them out if the people want. But like over if we had people over that did not like dogs, and they were there for three hours. And they trusted. And Shelby was in place for three hours. And, and Logan and, Logan and Bentley, everyone was in place, three hours. I don't like on Shabbos. Shelby is really good with kids. Logan doesn't like kids. He's he, he growls at kids, and I'm okay with that. He's more introverted. Don't touch me. Don't talk to me. Shelby's like, if you have a ball, I'll play with you for hours. Yeah. So Shelby was in the front yard playing with, with a bunch of kids, and Logan, the kids tried coming over, and I'm like, don't pet my dog without asking me first. And I'm like, Logan, place. And he went into place, and he went to sleep and- in the middle of the chaos, in the middle of the dining room, sleeping. Right. Through. And he felt safe, and you protected his boundaries, right. and and the kids, and everyone, like and everyone, like, yeah, like I know that, I, I know that if if you aggravate a dog enough, they can nip you. So, it's like putting them. So, in what do you tell people who come over when it comes to boundaries with your dog? Because kids want to pet it, kids want to grab it, kids want to play with it. Some kids will put their hands in their food bowl, right. or just get up in their grill, right. and then right. you know it's not even the poor dog's fault. So, what right. should families know about? Kids and dogs and play and friends. Okay, so first of all, food should never be left out. I believe in hand-feeding your dogs, but never leave your food out so you don't have that issue. Um, also, in, if you're scared that your dog is going to bite someone, you need to desensitize that dog to everything. Biting is never allowed unless it actually feels threatened, okay? Like someone, one of the kids, like, poked Logan in the eye and grabbed his tail, so he whipped around and, like, nipped the kid. The kid was fine, but he was, like, it was a warning, like, don't do that. And I said to the parents, like, you need to watch your kid. That's your responsibility to watch mm-hmm. your kid. If if kids like dogs, they want to play with my dogs. Well, first of all, I make sure my dogs are in a calm state before any kids can even talk to them. So when the kid comes over, I say, go play for a few minutes. Dogs are settling down. When everyone's in a calm state, the dogs can then come out and go greet the kids if the kid wants to. I generally don't like people petting my dogs. Most dogs do not like being pet. I know people think they do. By your, their own family, yes. By strangers, no. 
Unless they they're a, a, a dog that's specifically trained for to that. that. Yeah, yeah, like a therapy yeah, dog. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, I, I don't let people do that. But you can play with my dogs, but, like, only Shelby really likes being played with. But if your dog likes to be play, playing with kids in an interactive way, meaning ball, tug, frisbee, all that kind of stuff, that's great. The best habit to get into is don't let anyone but your family pet your dog. It will save you from any kind of unwanted nips or growls because if your dog is growling because someone's petting it and you're like stop growling no it just basically said mom can you please make this person stop and you said no i don't respect your space right yeah. what about putting a dog into a separate room when kids come over i remember i so many people in my childhood used to do that i hate cause, that because then they bark and cry the whole time scratching at the door right so what happens is and the family secretly wants the guest to leave so the dog can right come back out. right which is why i place is so important i have place in my dining room so they a can place means that you have a dog bed that so assigned a to raised, each dog, yeah, and they so, go there when you yeah, say either, place. Place is either a crate or like a raised dog bed or, or just a place. It could even be like a blanket on the floor where they're not allowed to get off of, meaning they're all fours have to They're be home base. Home base, yes. They're safe place. Safe mm-hmm. place. Putting a dog in a room when it's anxious, meaning if, let's say, like people come over and your dog barks and jumps at everyone and drives everyone crazy and tries to get their attention and nips at their hands for attention, so you put it in another room. Well, it's doing that behavior because it's anxious and scared, doesn't know what to do with itself because you never taught it how to self-soothe and have down time so it's in another room scared out of its mind can't see the people doesn't know how to slow their mind down enough just to like smell and listen and make sure that everything's okay they're frantic and frantic frantic people like, i locked my dog in the bathroom because he like was barking and i'm like that is like locking your kid in a dungeon it's abusive it's abusive it's a horrible thing to do. Train and it's your not dog. Effective. It's not effective. It's worse. It makes them more anxious. They have separation anxiety. Like your dog sleeps in your bed, and then you lock it in a room, and someone comes over. That's a and very they have no message. control of getting out. No, it's it's awful. It's awful. Teach your dog how to have downtime. Putting your dog in place during the day, it's like putting your two-year-old in for a nap. And it could be the crate, which is great. Anything, but it's like people are like, imagine. Okay, imagine you had a two-year-old you never put him for a nap, and you're like, why is he acting crazy? Well. It's the same thing. Dogs need to be told when to have downtime. Shelby can go straight for tw- 14 hours straight if I let her. Logan, by himself, goes and takes naps. He's, he's an old man. Like, he acts like oh, an old so man. Oh, so you insist that the dogs rest at the appropriate times. It's good for them and it's good for the yeah. family. If no one's home, they'll sleep. But if there's stuff going on and I can see that they're going to get, like, too excited, I make them just have down. I just know. You need to go take... You need so to dogs need downtime, they need exercise, and they yeah. need good nutrition. And, and good st- mental stimulation. And good mental stimulation. So, again, exercise, mental stimulation, nutrition, and... Downtime. Downtime. Okay, good. So let's talk about food. Okay. <laughs> um, one of the things that, uh, that bothered me when we tried the dog is that the food really could be everywhere. Like I found between the treats and the dog mm-hmm. bowl and mm-hmm. opening the big bag. Like right. this is not something I'm used to in a from house, having this right. trafe, uh-huh. smelly, strong, uh-huh. fleshig yeah. Yeah. stuff in my house. Yeah. How? What's the best way for, to feed a dog? Where should people feed a dog? Any tips for people when it comes to food and dinner time in your house? Yeah, yeah it's a good and, question. And your dog. It's a great question. So with food, I feed my dogs kibble. Some people do a raw diet. I don't. I just, I don't have the energy for it. Um, I feed them a very high quality food. Nothing that basically comes from China because it's made of chemicals. I don't really use treats for my dogs. They work for their food. So with all the dogs I train now, I use actual dog food to train them. So stop buying treats because then your dogs are working for working for treats. See, I didn't know that. And the treats were annoying and annoying. expensive. Yeah, very expensive. So I 
keep my food stored in a bucket on the bottom of my pantry, like a closed bucket. I fill up two bowls, I walk to the living room, and I hand feed my dogs, and I make them do things, like work for it. Or I take it with me to the park, and I do recall with the food. You should never have that food in your kitchen because it is absolutely, like, nothing kosher about it. Nothing kosher about it. See, I know um, that. I, I, Well, I didn't have that option either because I don't really have space right. in my apartment right. for, for a dog's eating area. Yeah. But if you do, make them an area. Yeah, make them an area. Wa- wash your hands before. I, I never touch my own food if I have dog stuff on my hands. It's You don't want that. Also, Basar Rechalov is, a, is a, actually an Esther with dogs. It actually is. That's the thing. Like, you can feed them non-kosher, but you can't do Basar Rechalov. Tell you what. Yeah. You can't give your dog meat and milk under your roof? I'll feed them cheese as a treat, and then 10 minutes later give them, or even five minutes later, give them their meat. Like You're not going to give them a handful of meat and cheese together. Right. And you see that sometimes. We're training. We're using deli. We're using che- cheese. And I'm like, oh, wait, everyone stop. Let's take one of them away. Okay, it's so actually a problem. That's a halacha. It's actually a thing. Okay. Yeah. I know that this is like almost a stereotype of a dog where they're eating off the dinner table. Mm. Kids are giving them snacks. They yeah. love peanut butter. Yeah. Don't give them chocolate. Don't give them grapes. Right. What are some of the basic food rules when it comes to human food and dogs? Okay. Never feed them human food. It's very simple. When you have mealtime, your dogs need to be in place. They should never be coming to the table. They should never be, they'll be jumping on you and begging for food. You'll look at their puppy eyes. You'll feel bad and you'll give them food. No. First of all, feeding them all kinds of human food, like people give their dogs pizza and pasta and all Ice kinds cream. of stuff. Awful. Your dog is going to end up with stomach cancer and diabetes and all these things, and you're going to end up spending a lot of money down the line trying to keep this dog healthy. You're not doing them any favors. No. And, and yeah, not only is it not good for them, but now you've created bad habits. That means that anyone high and anyone's eating something, they're begging for it. I just rule, no begging. Don't even look at me. Absolutely not. If, if, they're, if they are in place, and let's say I'm serving chicken for dinner, and they're like, happen to be nicely in place sometimes i'll bring them a little bit of chicken at the end of the at the end of the meal because you also know that chicken is 100 healthy yeah. for them yeah they can have chicken and meat and fish and stuff like that there's obviously the foods that they can never ever have which are chocolate onions oh. garlic grapes and raisins um avocado oh interesting one mm-hmm. okay i don't think they'll die from that but it's not good for them um but in general like when i look on instagram and i see people like feeding their dogs all kinds of things I'm like, this is not cute. It's not funny having your dog eat off your plate or sitting next to you at your height. You are telling your dog you're equal to me. And eating at the same time. You're trying to create a separation. Our family's having dinner. You are not a human. And the minute you create that separation, they feel calmer and they know their place in the world. If they're not sure if they're a human or a dog because they sleep with you and they eat with you and they walk in front of you, then they never know what they are. So they're always anxious. And also they're dogs. They will be frantic for food. They will be frantic for a piece of meat. Always. So just nip it in the bud. That's fine. Yeah. My husband smokes meat in the backyard. They sit by the grill and they drool. I don't care. I don't care. You can sit by the grill and drool. You're so (laughs) strict. But you're not getting it. It's not not for you. What about a bone? So when we have, for example, like ribs or any of these kind of things, lamb chops on bone, after the meal, again, I'll give them each a bone. I'll send them outside to the yard. To enjoy. Enjoy. Be a dog, eat the bone, chew on the bone, they'll eat entire bones. Um, but never, ever, ever have your dog near the table. It is not good for them. They might, while you're training them to not be near the table, it's it's hard to break that habit, but it's the best thing. So if your dog is trained to go to its place. space, to mm-hmm. its place, and not to beg for food, you can have a beautiful, oh, and you tell your guests to respect your dog's boundaries. Mm. You can have a beautiful Shabbos meal with people yeah. over and your dog's not begging, not barking, and you don't hear from them. sitting quietly till right the meal's over. The, right next to the table. My place thing's right next to the table. I the know. The table. Yeah. yeah, and it's like you should never have to feel like 
I can't do this because I have dogs. People come the dogs way for yuntif because they're like, I can't have my dogs over because so many people here and the state and different things. No, 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 no. Your Whatever dog you're doing, the dog could be there. Yeah, and they can control your life. I guess I told you I had this furniture being delivered, right? Two big Hasidish guys come into my house. They're moving things in and out. And they're building things. And Shelby and Logan are both in their place in the living room sleeping. Logan's in the crate, I said, in the room chilling. Meaning, I didn't have to think, shoot, where am I putting the dogs while this is going on? Because they're going to try to attack the people delivering, or they're going to be barking. I know Hasidim are scared of dogs. And when they walked in, I said, you don't have to worry, I promise. They will not talk to you. They won't touch you nothing. And I, and I can trust them. So the same goes for Shabbos, Yom Tif, and when, when you're from, there's all these different seasons and things going on. Constantly, and, constantly. Yeah, and you have to teach your dog, don't touch the menorah, don't touch the sufganiyot, yeah. don't eat chew on that dreidel. Um, or, you know, you have to know, can you give them a piece of matzah? The answer right. is no. It's no. not good for them, no. Okay. So if done right, a dog can live seamlessly with a religious family and not be, you know, your schedule might be a little up and down from time right. to time, right. but if you're pretty much consistent. So let me ask you, what are the concerns that a from family could have when it comes to having an animal in a kosher home? And this has nothing to do with the food, but more about... Can you daven with an animal around you? You know, can you touch an animal on Shabbos? Um, what if a, there's an emergency and your do- dog is choking? Can you get into your car and drive right. to the emergency room? So what are some of the things that you've learned? Oh, and most importantly, when it comes to... Yeah, spaying and neutering. Right, when yeah. it comes to spaying and neutering, yeah. th- so, what, what are, that's a so, really big one. Yeah, so let's be honest. I don't know every single halacha about every single thing. I know that the problem with petting a dog is pulling out hair. Okay. So a lot of people don't pet a dog on Shabbos. I don't specifically pet them and not pet them. I try not to touch them too much anyway. I try to, like, mostly ignore them, to be honest, mm-hmm. so that they care to be with me. You're not allowed to pick up your dog. Okay. Unless you are saving its life, meaning let's say you're wow. walking and your dog falls in the middle of the street and you have to pick it up and bring it home. You can do that. Oh, you're saying on Shabbos? On Shabbos. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's Shabbos stuff. Um, I... I don't think there's a problem with dabbing in front of a dog. I mean, we do. Um, I never heard anything like that. Now, this is an issue, though. On Shabbos, if your dog is hurt and you have to go to an emergency room, you're not allowed to take your dog. You have to find a non-Jew to take your dog. You can't. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's okay. not, you're not allowed to break Shabbos for that, which That's is important to know. really horrible. And to be honest, I don't it's know hard. if I'd be able to do that, you know. And what was the other thing that you asked me? Oh, spaying and neutering. So that... That every rub says something different. Every single rub says something different. We we got the sock that as long as a non-Jew does it, it's fine. That's what I read on the internet yeah. and, and when I asked around. Then, yeah. yeah, it's like hetero lemachira. Yeah, exactly the same thing. I would say it's like it's like sell your sell your chametz. Like you sell know? your chametz. Yeah, sell your dog. Sell so your dog. they have a guy in Modian who's an Arab who does it. Our vet here, she her vet tech is not Jewish. He does the actual whatever it is. So we have our Jewish dog. Mm-hmm. And he's trained, and he's doing well. And then, you know, life flies by like the blink of an eye, mm-hmm. and your dog is not doesn't live human years. Your dog right. lives dog years. So it's before so you know it, you have an older dog. Mm-hmm. What do families not realize about having an older dog, how it has to be treated, and how it shouldn't be treated? And what, mm-hmm. what are the things you should be concerned about and look out for? And yeah. yeah. So as your dog gets older, a lot of things are going to change. They'll get hip dysplasia, get arthritis, stuff like that. Um, I actually said some, some the other day in the park, I saw someone, I said, do you ever get your dog checked for, like, arthritis? She's like, no. I'm like, well, he's, like, limping. 
like really badly. Um, and she didn't even notice. She didn't notice. Like he doesn't complain. I'm like most dogs won't. They'll just go get used to the pain. Like I treated, I trained this massive Doberman that had horrible arthritis and she didn't say anything to me when I first started treat, training him and he was like eight years old which is old, older for a Doberman and I said why why doesn't why doesn't he sit when I say sit she's like oh he can't his hip plates don't move and I'm like so we need to figure out an alternative for when we tell him like we just did down instead of sit straight away because he can't not stop like we need to train There's, him to right dogs have serious down. health issues Self, need to be addressed serious, yes um when your dog gets older you can't, you have to, it's like having an, like dealing with an older, like mother in the house or whatever it is, right? They'll have incontinence as they get older. Um, their hearing goes, they'll have cataracts, diabetes, sometimes they'll need insulin shots. Um, and sometimes they're healthy till the day they die. I get called in a lot of people to like look at their older dogs and they say like, what do I do? And I've told people to put their dogs down. I've been to people's houses where the dogs have cancer. And they're like, no, I'd give him painkillers. He's fine. And I'm like, he is suffering. Doesn't this is selfish. To, right. Doesn't it's need selfish. to have his life no, anymore. He's sel- you're being selfish because you're keeping him because you want him. Meanwhile, he's in horrible pain every single day. And a, and a Jew is allowed to put their dog to sleep. Yeah, yeah. In and case like, people wonder how that right, works. Right, but but not like, oh, because he's getting old and annoying, so I want to put him down, because that's also really selfish. Like, if your dog is still living a good life, and it's just like, oh, he walks a little bit slower, and he goes to the bathroom more often... Okay, you committed to this. But if your dog is li- is in actual pain, like, you know, I- I've seen some crazy, crazy, crazy things, and um, people are, like, crying, like, please, please, like, I, I don't want to put a dog down. And I'm like, your dog is, like, living a personal hell. Like, it's not. We we were going to touch upon which dogs you recommend, by yes, the way, and yeah, we got yeah. distracted. Yeah, yeah. So tell me a little bit about which dogs you recommend, what toys you recommend, mm-hmm. um, and anything else like fun and, you know, yeah. and how people could reach you and how people could okay. train their dogs properly. Like yes. the floor is yours. Okay. Go for it. All right. So in terms of breeds, like I said, you have working line and then you have non-working line of most things. You'll have a German Shepherd working line and non-working line. Okay. And same thing with Golden Retrievers and everything like that. Now, within those things, you have different breeds of dogs. Mo- Every single dog is officially a work dog. God made them to work for us. That's why they're here. They're not here to sit in our lap and look pretty, but they're here to work. They're here for to work for us. So every dog needs a job during the day, and we get them, we give them a job. But some dogs are more intense. For example, Australian Shepherd Border Collie mix is used to working twelve hours a day. Has a very intense herding drive. You know, like any terriers, like a pit bull, anything like that. They have a lot strong prey drive. They need space. So you need you need to work it hard, like exhaust their brains and physically. So people always say, I just want to get a small dog, they're easier. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. They can be easier, but people very gen- they generally get a small dog, and they're like, they walk around holding, and they treat it like a baby, and then it's even hard. It, it, it becomes a monster. Most of my scars on my hands are from Maltese's. And right, little like that. dogs can bite they're, very, they're, very strongly also. Yeah, and they're vicious because of the way they were raised. They're not actually vicious dogs. So a small dog de- generally needs less exercise and less stimulation, a little bit less. Like, I say a perfect first dog to get is a Cavalier King Charles or, like, a Westland Terrier or something like that. They're – or, like, a Yorkie. They're smaller dogs. They don't need as much exercise. They still need the same confidence building boundaries and all that, but they do much better being in the house for a good chunk of the day. And and when you go out and you do a 15-minute walk with them as long as they're engaged and working with you, they can be in the crate for 10 hours and they're fine. Um, Which dog can't do that? Every dog can do that, but if you're putting, you know, uh, 
a golden retriever or a lab or something like that in a crate for the day, which is fine, you can't do a 20-minute walk. You need to work that dog for like an hour until right. it's exhausted. So different breeds have different character traits that are yeah. specific to their yeah. breed. Yeah. Because the word breed comes from to breed. Yeah. And animals um, are used for specific different tasks. things. Yeah. Right. right. So I also think a golden retriever, lab, great dogs. Again, I'm going to say it again. Stop buying poodles. I know they're very cute and they don't shed, but I promise you they're really, really hard to train. They're just naturally crazy. Is it important to have a breed? Can you just get a mix? No. A mix is fine. And mixes usually live a longer, healthier life, actually. Um, but you have to know what the mix is. You have to understand what it and is. And you could find that. Most people can Most, identify. Yes. I'm working with these two dogs. They're actually sisters. Now, a dog can have multiple dads in one litter, which is interesting. One is a German Shepherd Pipple mix, and one is a Husky Pipple mix. Okay? Now, both very smart. Huskies are way more intense, defiant dogs naturally. You should never get a Husky as a first-time dog owner. So ever. many people in this neighborhood or in Israel in general yes. get Huskies, and I'm like, it's not even a dog for this climate. It's so sad. It's so sad. So you want to know what you're getting for the most part, okay? Now, within obviously within every line, you, with every kind of breed, you have different things. Larger dogs, I think, are generally better with kids, because they don't feel as threatened. Mm -hmm. Whereas a small dog, when like oh, there's a baby on the floor, it's very confusing to them. But if you have a larger dog, if your kid like bumps into it or steps it's on it by mistake. the appropriate size to handle that kind of It could of stuff. handle it. I also want to know that my dog can protect my kids. Your two-year-old should be able to walk your 80-pound golden retriever on a perfect heel down the street like they should be able to. And I actually think that as long as you're able to give these dogs like the right training, I think that German Shepherds are amazing dogs. I think that Goldens are amazing dogs. There's so many amazing dog breeds out there people don't even know about. There are people who have no experience with dogs that see a dog with a newborn and mm -hmm. they're like, oh, but mm -hmm. they don't even understand. Like there's more chance that your kid will harm yes. your baby than yes. your dog. unless your dog is untrained. But the other thing that I will say is that if you have no experience with dogs, do not get a Belgian Malinois, a Dutch Shepherd, a Rhodesian Ridgeback. These dogs are very serious, serious working dogs that have such a strong drive that if you're not working them three, four hours a day, don't do it. Yeah, um, yeah so I, I think that people generally go for these smaller dogs. They think it will be easier. They are in a – they can be if they're trained properly from day one. You don't treat them like a human personally like larger dogs better how, how much stuff do dogs need not a lot at all don't buy them a ton of toys they don't need it don't leave toys out the dog should never be able to take get the toys on its own there's four ways to like to to like reward a dog okay there's like just like the love languages you have words of affirmation good girl that's a good girl or physical touch give them a little pet a toy play interactive play and food I use food at the beginning to train a dog. After that, we take all the food away, and we use play or all the other types of rewards, okay? Otherwise, your dog is just doing tricks for food. Um, the, the toys should be somewhere where when you take it out, you can play with your dog, meaning your dog knows that, like, the play happens because... When my, you initiate it. Yeah, and when your owner is, is giving you something, right? It's a, it's a, we're all, tr everything you do, you're trying to build a connection. Every single thing you do, you're hand feeding them, you're building a connection, you're playing with them, you're building a connection. Now, like for example, Shelby's addicted to her ball, right? She carries it around. That's now, you're a sucker for it because when you come over, every time she gives it to you, you keep throwing it to her. Yeah, even though like, it's no, wet, I, I just so want to, yeah. yeah. I'm like, no, like leave it. I'm not throwing you the ball. No, we're, like, we're not doing this now. She came to my bed this morning with her Frisbee, 6 a.m. I'm like, 
Hex, get out of here. You're <laughs> out of your mind. Get out of here, right? So she will take her stuff. She opens drawers by herself. She opens doors by herself. Well, she's very... She's yeah, she's very right. She's also but most dogs, most doors, those dogs can't get their own toys if they're away in a away. cabinet. And having a million toys does not help because a dog playing by himself is not what he needs. The time is quality over quantity. Your dog playing by himself for four hours in the yard, roaming around, is giving him nothing. A half an hour of interactive play with obedience is worth more. What worth way more? Okay. What about those like peanut butter things that you put Kong, the, Kong. Kong. Those are great. Those are great for when you're doing place training and even just in the place. Stop. You want to give them like a like downtime and time to chill. Put peanut butter in, put in the freezer. Should you go crazy on like dog tags and leashes and all that stuff? Get the um, best you could afford? They're, they're not expensive. They're not expensive. Get a simple like um, collar with a name tag on it. Flat le- I like the, just the regular flat leashes, the cheap flat leashes, no retractable leashes because they're basically telling a dog to walk in front of you. They have a use. I promise you no one in this community is using them properly. They're, they're for like if you're out doing like massive scale work in the, in the, in the forest or tracking work that they're good for to have. For yeah, professional yeah. training. Okay. No harnesses. Harnesses basically tell a dog to pull. You put a dog, you think about what huskies look like. So when you put a harness on a dog, you're telling so it to pull. They take you on a sled. Right. So people were like, I don't want to use a flat collar because it's choking my dog out, so I got a harness. No, 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 you need to use something with least pressure, like a prong or a slip. Um, but a harness, you put it on the strongest part of the dog, and they just get stronger every single day. It's like working out, right. and they're pulling you down the street because it's what you're telling it. You're telling it to do that, so mm-hmm. don't do that. So basically, nothing has to be expensive with those things. A simple leash, simple collar, that's it. Okay. Um, I think I'm not going to get a dog. <laughs> yeah. But if I did, I would definitely be ready for one. And it's just so important. Too often, um, the dog doesn't have a good life. The family doesn't have a good life. Yeah. And our time here is limited. So yeah. why not have a wonderful experience? Right. With you shouldn't have to Hashem. suffer. And it's Hashem's creation. Yeah. And it's such a beautiful so, one, right? Oh, they're so good. They're so good. I I do. I travel to, to the States for, for work every two months. Um, Where can people find you? On Instagram. Leave it to Hummy. Um, and my WhatsApp is there, and I also do virtual training, and it works. I do it via Zoom. That's amazing. And I also do consultations on either what kind of dog should I get, should I get a dog, or this is what we're dealing with. Do you think that we're a good candidate to do the work, or do you think that we should rehome? So and you do do dog, dog guidance. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Yeah. And it's so worth it because then you just have clarity on what you have to and do. And the families love their dogs more and the dogs are happier and everybody yeah, everybody wins. Yeah. Just and, leave yeah. it to Hummy. Hummy will Hummy will it. make it right. I'll do it, yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you yeah. so much for being here. Thank you. All right. That's episode 54 for you. Don't forget to sign up for Daily Giving, download Razie's app, and let your friends know that Hamela has such an awesome podcast that everybody is listening to. If you want to be generous, leave a five-star review. Just tap on the five stars. Drop a couple of lines. Let the people know what you think of the show. And I will see all of you on Monday.